Good morning. Whoa, that's it's kind of loud. It's in my head. How's everybody doing? All right, good. Hey, uh, in their bulletin, if you didn't notice, there's a little flyer, just a reminder, with the activities sort of in more detail about the missions conference. So look that over. Especially, I'd, I'd encourage you... I'd encourage you to come to the movie night, bring, bring people. It should be fun to watch that. Bring snack, a snack to share. We'll have popcorn and drinks will be provided, so that's exciting. But in two weeks, so that's the first day, we'll, we'll, that's in two weeks from now, we'll have this missions conference. It's our first conference since 2019. It's about time, right? And I'm excited that Tim Driscoll... Uh, missionary in Japan for over 20 years now, will be with us uh, as our guest, guest speaker. I've known Tim since he was this tall. No, I, I've known him since college, and he was this tall. He's still that tall, so anyway. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, I've always wanted to be the missions conference guest speaker, but nobody ever asked me. Man, so I've decided to be the opening act for the missions conference. I talked to the missions team, and we decided I could, I could sort of do some foundational, foundation laying uh, for our conference, for Tim's message that he'll bring. Uh, he's going to preach from, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, if you want to look ahead at that. His, the message, title, message and mission of love is the title of his message. So I've talked to him a little bit, a bit about that. So uh, I'll be laying this foundation, and don't worry, we'll get back to Daniel, Lord willing, probably in September, maybe. No, just kidding. I, I think so. But for the next two weeks, we'll focus on the important question, why is Bridges a missions church? Why do we emphasize the importance of sending and supporting missionaries? Why do we give a good percentage of our budget to finance the work of missions? Why do we challenge our young and even not-so-young people to consider whether God is calling them to serve cross-culturally? Why do we have a missionary of the month? Why do we sign, put cards out there and seek to encourage them with our words in a card? Why is one of our core values engagement in the Great Commission? Why do we encourage and support ministry to international students? Why do we have a missions team that focuses on supporting the missionaries we send out? And finally, why do we have an usually annual uh, missions conference? Why is Bridges a missions church? And over the next two weeks, as we seek to answer that question, I have two purposes in mind. First, for those of you that already get it, who know the importance of being a missions church, maybe who even come to Bridges because we're a missions church. For you, I want this next two weeks to reinforce what you know to be true, to cause you to know in maybe a deeper, more settled way in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, to cause you to ask, ask again, is there something more that God wants me to do to see the gospel uh, go to the ends of the earth? So that's my first purpose. My second is for those who aren't really convinced of the importance of being a missions church. 
Maybe you're new to bridges, or maybe you just don't understand what the big deal is. Maybe you don't understand why we spend much of our time and resources out there uh, when, we, when the needs are so great and seem to be increasing right here. Well, I certainly understand that. There was a time when I didn't understand why missions was such a big deal. I never thought it was bad. It was just one of those things. just didn't need to involve me. To be honest, I, I really didn't think much about it at all. I wanted to follow Jesus, but the idea of following him outside of uh, the, the comfort and safety of my uh, country wasn't something I ever even considered. But then I met some people from this church called Bible Fellowship of Riverside. That used to be the name of this church, Bridges. They're a little different from other Christians I knew. They wanted to reach out to the people around them, but it didn't stop there. They had a passion for seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ go to the nations. And at first, I didn't get it. I remember saying, look, if God wants me to be involved in missions, he's going to have to come down and grab me by the scruff of the neck, the collar, and uh, turn and yell into my ear, Cliff, missions, go. But eventually, through many conversations, through mostly Bible study, prayer, and even attending a missions conference, God began, as he does, to whisper in my ear. I heard that still, small voice. And I came to understand and share the passion of these Christians from BFOR, now Bridges. In fact, that's the main reason I began attending this church in 1984, because it was a missions church. And I thank God that it continues to be a missions church. So what is a missions church? Well, let me give you my definition. A mission church takes an active role in sending and supporting people who cross cultural barriers to see the gospel of Jesus Christ taken to all nations, all peoples. Now, I have, and I will continue to call Bridges a missions church. But over the next two weeks, I want us to see that every church should be a missions church. Every church should take an active role in sending and supporting people who cross cultural barriers to see the gospel of Jesus Christ taken to the nations. As the founder of Hudson Taylor, uh, the founder of China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor, said, "The Great Commission, missions is not an option to consider, but a command to obey." Every Christian and therefore, every church must seek God for their part in fulfilling the Great Commission, in making disciples of all nations. We find this modeled for us from the church from the very beginning. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, we read about the first missions church. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the first example we have of missionaries being sent out. And notice that Paul sort of a pretty famous missionary guy, and Barnabas are sent out by the church in Antioch. 
The call to send them came through the Holy Spirit, but it came to both the missionary and the church. The responsibility for sending missionaries to the ends of the earth belongs with the church. At Bridges, we want to continue in the tradition of, uh, established by the church in Antioch. But I want to make one thing clear up front. Being a missions church does not mean we're not a local church. For some reason, there seems to be a tension between local ministries or cross-cultural ministries, but that tension need not exist. Every church is called to minister to the culture and community they find themselves in, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in your world. And every church is called to, to take part in crossing cultural barriers with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Cross-cultural missions is really the exporting of the local church to the nations. That's what it means to be a missions church. We understand that. We participate in that. So over the next two weeks, I want to give two main reasons that we are a missions church. This week, we'll focus on the fact that we're a missions church because we love a missions God. And next week, we'll look at the fact that we are a missions church because we serve a missions God. Both of these reasons focus on the fact that God is a missions God. That God, through His church, takes an active role in sending and supporting people who cross cultural barriers to see the gospel of Jesus Christ taken to all peoples. God's uh, missions is God's idea. And that's clearly seen in our first point for this morning. Why is Bridges a missions church? Because we love God's word. If you don't have a good understanding uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the love or, or love for God's Word, you might think that throughout the entire Old Testament, God was only working with one group of people, the Jews. You might have the wrong idea that missions began in Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus gave the Great Commission. That right before He ascended into heaven, He said, oh, uh, before I forget, if you get a chance, there's one more thing I want you to do. If you have time, could you go therefore and make disciples of all nations? And if that's the case, if missions is just a tack on at the end, if it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament, and if Jesus uh, just uh, thought about it uh, at the end when, before he ascended, it makes it sort of easy to set aside, to make it an optional activity of the church. Well, some churches focus on missions, some don't, that's okay. Just one of the many things we do or don't do. But that's not the case. God's word that we love makes it clear that God's heart has always been to reach all peoples. If you were with us several years ago, uh, we, saw that, we saw that as we did the 52-week series through the Bible called The History of Redemption. Now today, we can't go through the whole Bible, unless you guys have some extra time. Uh, but we can summarize the story of the Bible. We can show that it reveals God's love for all peoples. And to do that, I wanna, I'm going to do two things. First, I'm going to show a, uh, you a video. It does just a great job of summarizing visually, auditorily, the story of the Bible. And second, I'm going to focus in, a couple, in on a couple key passages that help us see God's heart for all people. So first... 
Uh, let's watch the video. The Bible is an incredible text made up of 66 different books written by more than 40 authors over a span of a thousand years. It is not just a compilation of a bunch of different stories, or a self-help manual, or even a devotional book. It is one cohesive story from Genesis to Revelation, the story of God's glory. Let's take a look at his story. In the beginning, God created everything for himself and his glory. At the pinnacle of that creation, he made man so that God could share himself with others. We were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. But man decided that God couldn't be trusted, that he was holding something back from us. We decided to live for ourselves instead of for God, and this filled the earth with sin and selfishness. The generations of man had soon gone so far off track, in fact, that God flooded the entire earth and started over with a man named Noah. When Noah stepped off the ark, God told him the same words he had told Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Once again, however, humanity looks to give itself honor instead of God. Because they all shared the same language, it was easy to communicate and cooperate, so they made a plan. At a place called Babel, they would build a tower up to the heavens and in doing so make a name for themselves. They labored to build their own kingdom rather than obey God's command. They had made the same mistake as each of the generations before them. Since mankind had ignored his message to spread his name and his glory throughout the earth, God took matters into his own hands. He scrambled the languages of the people so they could no longer communicate easily with each other. In that moment, God had formed the many different tribes and peoples of the world, so the different people groups spread to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Out of those nations, God chose a man named Abraham and made a covenant with him. God told Abraham that he would bless him and all his descendants, turning them into a great nation that would bless all the other nations. God eventually called this nation Israel, and he began to demonstrate his glory through them in many ways. He gave them a set of laws to live by so that they could live separate and holy lives from all the other nations. In doing so, they would become his royal priests, mediating between God and man. By living out his commands in the sight of the nations, Israel would encourage people to love God and love others. God also gave Israel a special geographical place on the earth, strategically located in the middle of all other nations. It was in this promised land that Israel would be a light to all nations, showing them the path to God even in the darkness of the world. Sometimes Israel would live out this calling well, understanding God's desire to bless all of the peoples of the earth through them. Other times, though, Israel would fall into the same trap that humanity had again and again, glorifying itself rather than glorifying God. When Israel got off track, God intervened. Sometimes he raised up prophets to remind them of their mandate to bless the nations with the blessings he had given them. Other times he would discipline his people by allowing them to be taken captive by other nations. Regardless, God used Israel, even in their disobedience, to make his name great throughout the earth. But all of this was just the beginning of what God had in store. In all of its ups and downs, Israel grew hungry for a promised Messiah King who would establish an everlasting kingdom that would never be defeated. That, of course, leads us to Jesus. 
God sent His Son Jesus to earth for 33 years to dramatically demonstrate the Father's love for both Jew and Gentile alike. Yes, He was from King David's bloodline, but His genealogy had both Jews and Gentiles in it. His first worshipers were the wise men, Gentiles from the East. Angels proclaimed that His salvation would be for all peoples. Even His baby dedication identified Him as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Time and time again, Christ reminded His disciples, who considered themselves God's favorite, that God's plan from the beginning was to bless all peoples. His life modeled this message perfectly. He became angry when the temple wasn't being used as a house of prayer for all nations. He told parables about the kingdom of God being a kingdom for all people groups. And he preached good news to Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, educated, and uneducated alike. Jesus served Canaanites, Samaritans, Romans, and Greeks. He was and is a true Messiah for all nations. He lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, and rose again with a perfect resurrection. Then he commanded us to go make disciples of all nations, the perfect words to sum up his ministry. He told us that this gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all of the ethnic groups, and then the end would come. We saw the beginnings of this when the Holy Spirit filled the disciples at Pentecost and told the wonders of God in all the different languages of the world. We saw it continued when Christ called Paul and other apostles to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It continues even now. We are waiting for the end that we see in Revelation, when the Lamb of God, Jesus, has purchased with His blood people from every nation. Those people will form a multitude that no one can count from every tribe, tongue, and people group, worshiping and saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the story of the Bible, a single cohesive story from cover to cover. God's story, the story of His glory among all the nations. But it can't come to fruition until all nations have heard. He invites you into that story. He invites you into that mission. What part will you play? That was good, right? Yay! Excellent. So we have sort of the overview, right? That gives us the big picture. Let's focus in on a couple key passages beginning in Genesis chapter 12 that the video mentioned. In the first three verses, we have the first instance of what's called the Abrahamic covenant. Following the Tower of Babel incident, Genesis 11, after the peoples were scattered, we have an earth that has many different people groups, people speaking many different languages. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was as if God looked down on, uh, from heaven and saw all the different people groups that had come out from the Tower of Babel. He wanted to reach them all, and he came up with a plan. He could have chosen a representative for each people group, but he didn't. He chose one man to start a new group that would be his people. He, he chose Abraham 
to be the father of a new nation. And, and through that nation, all the peoples of the world would be blessed. God's Word shows that God's heart has always been for all peoples. Now, you might be saying, that, but, but didn't God destroy the other nations? Didn't He judge other peoples? Yes, He did. But was he doing? But what was he doing uh, as he was judging? Uh, was he just punishing them? Well, he, he was. But I believe the Bible teaches that he was also revealing himself to them. Let's think about one of the harshest judgments ever recorded, or recorded in the Old Testament: the ten plagues. Not just one, but ten that God brought upon Egypt uh, uh, because they wouldn't let His people go. What was God accomplishing through these plagues? What was his purpose? Was his only desire to force the Egyptians to release Israel? Or was he also systematically demonstrating his power over their gods? In Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, God says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Each of the plagues God sent was calculated to destroy their trust in their gods. And in one god in particular, the Egyptians worshipped their Pharaoh. He was to them God in human form. And with each of the ten plagues, God demonstrated that Pharaoh was completely powerless against the one true God. So what was the result? There's a really cool scene in uh, maybe my favorite animated movie of all time. The Prince of Egypt. You guys like that one? That's good. It's a good one. It's a very short scene, and if you aren't looking, it'll go unnoticed. After Pharaoh finally let the Hebrews go, we see two Egyptians uh, standing there holding spears, watching the children of Israel exit Egypt. They don't say a word. They just look at each other, drop their spears, and join in with the exodus. And that's exactly what the Bible says happened. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, we read, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, beside the women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Who were the mixed multitude that went up with them? They were the Egyptians and others who lived in Egypt at that time. They were people who, who, after seeing God demonstrate His great power, realized their greatest hope was to join the people of God. Again, God's Word shows that even in judgment, God's heart has always been for all peoples. Moving along in time, when the Jewish people were well established in the land of Israel, they set up a kingdom, and if you remember, their first king was a guy named Saul, not so awesome. Their second king was a guy named David. Had his falls, but really, man after God's own heart. And their third king was Solomon. And Solomon had the privilege of, of building and then dedicating a temple to the Lord. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 31, I mean 41 through 43, we read part of Solomon's prayer of dedication at the temple. He says, likewise, this is a prayer to God. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake... For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When, they come and pray, when he comes and prays toward this house, 
Here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do the people of Israel, and that they may know that this house that is built is called by your name. Solomon knew that people in all nations, I mean, you get that that map there, Israel is sort of in the center of the nations, there's nations surrounding them, there was actually a trade route, the major trade route went through Israel along the Mediterranean Sea there, so Solomon knew that people would, would know and they would hear about Israel and hear about their God, other nations would hear of God's greatness and would come to his temple, the Queen of Sheba, an example And Solomon's prayer was that God would answer the prayer of these foreigners, thus spreading the word of God to all the peoples of the earth. Solomon understood that God had a heart for all peoples. But unfortunately, Solomon was half-hearted towards the Lord. He married foreign wives. uh, He wasn't doing evangelistic marrying. He was sort of more influenced by them than they were by him. He allowed the worship of foreign gods in the land of Israel. And this sort of began this downhill spiral of the nation Israel. The kingdom was divided. Because of their disobedience to God, they were judged. We talk about God judged the nations, but God also judged his nation Israel. As we've just seen in the book of Daniel. They were defeated in war and exiled to foreign lands. But even in exile, we see God working through his people to witness to the nations. Just last week, we saw one of the greatest examples of this in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel, an exile, was faithful to God in the midst of a pagan culture. He was a representative of God in a foreign land, and he represented well. He refused to worship other gods. He refused to give up his daily prayer time, and for that he was thrown to the lions. And because he trusted in and obeyed God, he was delivered. But if you remember, that was not the end of the story. Daniel goes on at the end of chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. He gives the aftermath of the lion's den. King Darius, the one who reluctantly had Daniel thrown to the lions, he says, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. God's deliverance of Daniel was such a great witness to his power that this uh, king, this pagan king, issues this decree throughout his entire empire, endorsing, even commanding, if you can, the worship of the one true God of Daniel. Again, God's word, which we love, shows that God's heart has always been for all peoples. And these are just a few of the examples, a few of the many examples of God working among other peoples in the Old Testament. There's more, like Joseph in Egypt, and Jonah to Nineveh, Esther in Persia. But we need to move to the New Testament, where God's heart for all peoples becomes explicit. Each of the Gospels and the book of Acts includes Jesus giving a command to reach the nations. Jesus really gives at least five great commissions. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
Mark 16, 15, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. We'll get to Luke in a minute. John 20, 21, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, sin so, so I am sending you. And Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Each of these verses underscores Jesus' God's heart for, to reach all peoples. Again, he chooses this, this group, this, this, these 12 apostles, and then he begins the church with them, and then that's to spread to the entire world. Also in Romans 15:20, we get a glimpse of the heart of uh, heart gave God, the heart God gave Paul. Paul writes, and thus, I make it my ambition. My goal, my desire to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul's ambition was to preach the gospel. Wherever he went, he preached the gospel. He proclaimed the glory of God through Jesus Christ. But not just preach the gospel. Paul had a heart to preach the gospel where it had not been heard before. At this point, you might be saying to yourself, okay, pastor, are you really saying that the whole point of God's Word is to communicate God's heart for the nations? Well, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but let me leave you with one final passage that to me sums up uh, sort of everything we've been talking about. It's Luke's turn now. This passage takes place after Jesus' resurrection, just before his ascension. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus encounters two of his followers and they engage in conversation. And in Luke chapter 24, verses 45 through 48, we read, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. This is Jesus' summary of the Scripture. What Scripture? The Old Testament scripture. There wasn't a New Testament at the time. Jesus says that the Old Testament has two main themes. First, the Christ will rise from the dead. This speaks of the redemption, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, the fulfillment of prophecy, and, and much more. And second, that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. This too speaks of redemption. It speaks of the nation Israel being a blessing to all the nations through Christ. Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations, to all peoples. And Abraham didn't understand this, but that blessing would ultimately come through Christ and ultimately be brought through the body of Christ, through the church. So I hope you see that God's Word reveals that his heart has always been for all nations. It wasn't a tack, tack on. It wasn't an afterthought. And therefore, the first reason we're a mission church is because we love God's word. And including in loving God's word, we want to obey God's word. And part of, a central part, a major part of obedience to God's word is engaging in the Great Commission. Now, the second reason that Bridges is a missions church is because we love God's world. God's people love what God loves. 
And the most familiar verse in the Bible, John 3.16, describes what God and therefore his people are to love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I've heard it said that you can take the word world and put your name in this passage. For God so loved Cliff that he gave. And, And I believe that's true, right? In 2 Peter, the apostle writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any, any individual should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I believe God loved me and you so much that he gave Jesus. But for today, for now, I want us to keep that word world right there where Jesus said it. And I, and I want us to take a second and think about the world that God loves. God loves individuals, but he also loves peoples and nations and ethnic groups. And if we're going to have the heart of God, if we're going to love his world like he does, then we have to know what it looks like. We have to know what we're up against, maybe. We have to know what he's calling us to. We have to understand the mission field. We have to open our eyes to see the world's needs, what's out there. And so again, I want us to watch another short video. This is like video day today. So these guys up there, uh, we haven't done a video in a long time, and Don and Dan are gone, and so they really worked because it wasn't working at first, and they figured it out. They're tech geniuses. They are moving up to varsity. Now, I'm saying that in, in, in hopes that this video works too, right? So, uh, but it gives us, this video gives us insights not only into the world, but into uh, the, the, the task, the church's efforts to reach that world. So, go ahead. Jesus told us 2,000 years ago that our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. He also promised us that only after we accomplish that task will we receive the blessing of His return. So, how are we doing accomplishing our mission? To answer that, let's classify the 7 billion people on the earth today into three groups. Let's start with the Christians. About 33% of the world's population would identify itself as Christian. We call this segment of the population World C, C for Christian. It's important to remember that not all of the people that fall into World C are true believers in Christ. They merely identify themselves as Christian because of nominal belief in Jesus or because they live in a country where everyone is considered Christian, so they would do the same. Next, there's the 38% of the world that has access to the gospel but has chosen not to follow Jesus. They have Bibles in their language, churches nearby, friends or co-workers who are potentially Christians, or access to other Christian resources in their language. These people have access to the good news, but just haven't acted on it yet. This segment of the population is called World B. That leaves us with 29% of the world, just over one out of every four people on this planet who not only have never heard of Jesus, they have no chance of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. They have no access to the gospel, no Bibles, no churches, no believers nearby, no chance to learn about Jesus. We call that 29% World A. Now on to missionaries. 
Only one out of every 1,800 Christians in World C decides to serve as a cross-cultural missionary. So, we can pull 400,000 missionaries out of that World C population. That's our total cross-cultural missionary force worldwide. Did you know that 72% of all our missionaries are going to World C? That's right! The vast majority of the missionaries being sent out are going to the people of the world that have Bibles and established churches. 25% of the missionaries are sent to World B, where there is already some access to the church and to the Bible. That leaves only 3% of the total missionary force to handle all of World A, the section of the population without any chance of hearing about Jesus. 29% of the world has no way to hear the gospel, but we're sending only a tiny portion of our Christian workers to them. What about finances? Annually, all those Christians in World C earn a total of $42 trillion. And, together, they give about $700 billion to Christian causes each year. That includes everything. Christian nonprofits, churches, youth programs, missions, etc. Can you do the math? Less than 2% of Christian income is being given to Christ's causes. Out of that $700 billion given to all Christian causes, only $45 billion is given to missions specifically. That's a little over 6%. In fact, there is more money reported embezzled from the church each year than is given to missions. Remember those 400,000 missionaries? We have $45 billion to support them and their cross-cultural work. But how exactly is it allocated? Well, $39 billion goes to World C every year. Yep. 87% of that mission's money is being spent in areas of the world that have Bibles and churches available. 5.4 billion, or 12%, goes to World B each year, those that have access to the gospel message but have rejected it. That leaves only $450 million, or 1% of all mission's money, going to World A, the least reached people of the world. To put that into perspective, annually Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than get sent to World A. To summarize, only 3% of our missionary force, armed with only 1% of missions giving, is going out to reach the 2 billion people who don't have access to the gospel. 2 billion people are still waiting for the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's a question for you. What are you going to do to change that? Right. How many sort of knew that? You knew that that was the situation. Uh, had an inkling. I think it, uh, when I first heard that, sort of those, that sort of those sort of statistics, it sort of opened my eyes a little bit to uh, where we as a church might need to direct some of our resources as well. And I hope we see that the world that God loves is in desperate need. And again, it's not, I'm not saying, and uh, I don't know what they're saying, but I'm not saying we necessarily need to take resources away from C&B. We just need to uh, let loose maybe a little more resources to go into area A. So, uh, so why is Bridges a missions church? So far, we've seen two reasons. First, because we love God's word that reveals God's command for his church to reach the nations. And second, because we love God's world. We love people, and we see their needs. We see millions headed to a Christless eternity, 
and we want to offer them the love that God has for that God has given them. I think those are two great reasons. I think obedience to God's word is necessary. I think a heart to see people come to Christ is crucial. But there's one more foundational reason we are a missions church. And this reason is the most important of all. The third reason Bridges is a missions church is because we love God's worship. When we focus on the obedience to God's word, then the missionary can be the focus of missions. And when we focus on the needs of the world, then the non-Christian can be the focus of missions. But when we focus on worship, when we understand that God's glory is the most important thing in all the universe, when we understand that, that He deserves the worship and the praise and the honor and the glory of all peoples, then God becomes the focus of missions. I've read this quote before, probably maybe not hundreds, but tens of times. Uh, But it's worth repeating. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. We are a missions church because we are a God-centered, God-glorifying worship church. And throughout Scripture, we're told to worship God. And often we're given a context for that worship. The Psalms are full of verses calling us to worship the Lord among the nations. In your notes, I've given you a list of some of these Psalms if you want to look at them. But for our time this morning, I want us to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 23 through 29. This is part of David's song of thanks that Israel had recovered the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines who stole it, those thieving Philistines. David writes, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in this place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in splendor, in the splendor of holiness. Good, good stuff, right? We learn several things from this passage, I think. First, we learn that all the peoples of the earth are commanded to sing to the Lord, to worship and proclaim His salvation. Look, uh, uh, the gospel, the God of this earth, Jesus Christ, is for all peoples. There is no other name under heaven by which they will be saved. And they're commanded, we're all commanded to ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. And to paraphrase Romans 10, 14, how can they worship the one they have not believed? It's the responsibility of the church to make sure they hear. To give them an opportunity to worship the one true living God. Second, from this passage, we learn how to accomplish our mission. Verse 24 answers that question. We declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all peoples. 
Missions is the act of worshiping God among the nations, of proclaiming His greatness to the peoples. Thirdly, we learn why God is to be worshiped. Because He's great, He's worthy, He's above all God. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. And finally, the fourth and final thing we learn is that all other gods are idols. We already knew that, I think. But think about it. All over the world, all the time, probably 24-7, Somewhere in the world, people are bowing down and worshiping and serving idols. The glory, honor, and praise due the one true God is going to images made by man or concepts from the pit of hell. If that doesn't spur us on to reaching the nations, then our understanding of God's great worth, His glory, is solely lacking. As A.W. Tozer said, God saves men to make them worshipers. And I'd like to conclude with just one example of the creation of a worshiper. As a missions church, it's our goal to see this story that I'm going to tell you repeated over and over among the nations. Uh, Kwan was a college student in Lopuri, Thailand. He was a Buddhist. And he gave his worship to golden images of a man who'd been dead for over 2,500 years. I met Kwan when I was a missionary in Thailand. Thank you. That's Kwan. That other little kid is my son, Michael. Kwan came to one of our evangelistic camps. He was a very typical Thai young man. He, he went to college, school, but his main course of study was having fun. He played the guitar like many Thai young men, because quite honestly, chicks dig musicians. Right, Liam? <laughs> after, the, after the evangelistic camp, Kwan's life began to change. His friend C, uh, nickname, had become a Christian, and Quan was interested in the gospel. He began attending the, the new church that we had started, and even played guitar during worship. Even before he came to Christ, he started to worship God. Through Bible study and learning worship songs, Quan's heart was open to the gospel, and it wasn't long before he too gave his life to Jesus. Today... Quan continues to lead worship. Sorry. Continues to lead worship as the pastor in the same church we and he helped start in Thailand. This photo was taken in 2018 when we uh, visited. Quan continues to declare God's glory among the nations in Thailand, his marvelous deeds among the Thai people. That's why we're a missions church, because we love a missions God. We love His Word, and it commands us to reach the nations. We love His world that's in desperate need, and we love His worship. We want God to receive the glory and honor He deserves. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, Lord, wherever we are, 
wherever each of us as individuals are in our understanding of your desire to reach the nations, to reach the ends of the earth, Lord, I pray that we would be moved along in that. I pray you would uh, speak to each heart. Give us, give us uh, practical ways to engage in fulfilling the Great Commission, to be part of a church that wants to send out people, to be sent out, Lord, to give, to support, to pray, so many ways we can be involved. And I pray you would uh, transform us in such a way that it's, it's, it's not just a duty, but it's a desire of our heart to see, to see the people of the world hear the gospel that you might be glorified. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Don't cut me off. Sorry. I just wanted to encourage you before Liam uh, leads us in our last song to join us next week as we'll see three more reasons why Bridges is a missions church and as we'll have the privilege of commissioning a missionary, Sherry Studebaker, who is heading to Nigeria in just a few weeks. So join us next week to be part of that.